Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Anita. And this is Dr. Rashmi. And welcome to Gupshop. I don't think they know me as Dr. Anita. I think they know me as Dr. Anil. Well, now everybody knows that your your AKA is Anu, but your full legal name is Anita. Government name. (laughs) Your government name. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Um, honestly, you know, I've had just like a very busy season in life. And I I was this is actually I, I I've been wanting to tell you this and I'm glad that that we are going to do it on, a- on on air. Yeah, because I know because I feel like this is like a good discussion to have on air. Um, So I was talking to my therapist as one does. And I've just been having a very busy season of my life. And I kept trying to like stave off some feelings of imposter syndrome or some feelings of, you know, unsettledness about all of the ventures that I'm involved in. And me trying to force myself to not be nervous and not be overwhelmed led to my anxiety like skyrocketing like you would not believe I was so like the last couple months I was so on myself to be like you can't feel these negative feelings you can't feel this you can't feel that to the point where like I was having like physical symptoms of my anxiety you know like my heart my resting heart rate was spiking and I felt like (laughs) when I went in for uh like a I had a sinus infection when I went and they took my blood pressure it was like a little higher than it normally is and I was like this is not like this is not normal for me like I usually have blood pressure that's on the lower side they're like well you know have you been having some anxiety and I was like funny you ask because I've been having a lot of anxiety and so a couple weeks ago I felt like I hit a wall and I was like you know what I can't force myself to feel positive about all this stuff even though it is positive in my life I'm having some very negative feelings about just like my self-confidence and my workload and other stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to lean into the the feeling of unsettledness. I'm going to lean into the feelings of, you know, just accept the fact that I'm a little unsettled and a little shaky. And it's like immediately my physical symptoms of anxiety. That's went away. crazy. I love I. Yeah. Immediately. I have never like I've never been in a place where like I've had anxiety to the point of like physical symptoms until and so I never could understand or relate to people after my mom died I realized like how much anxiety and then me trying to have to like perform almost and to be like not in grief or not you know like something was wrong increased my anxiety but because I was trying to like stifle it it would show up in like the weirdest physical somatic forms and like it's I know it's something we're going to get into today but also it's just insane how mental health really can like show itself in so many different ways absolutely and I I think also there's this interesting thing that happens in American culture um, and I've known for people who come from Eastern European cultures, that this is not true there. And I think to some extent, it's not true in a lot of Asian cultures too, where I feel like in American culture, there's this expectation to be happy all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it's like, you feel like you feel bad about yourself for feeling sad or grief, which is something that's totally natural, right? Like grief is, I mean, it's a horrible feeling, but it's it's so normal to 
to feel mm-hmm. that like very negative feeling. And I feel like everything that we hear from American culture is that you can't feel these bad feelings or you shouldn't be feeling these bad feelings and you should always be pushing yourself to feel only the good feelings. But I think, you know, like the human body is not meant to not feel bad feelings. Like those feelings serve a purpose, right? Like to some extent, uh, nervousness and grief and all of these things serve a purpose. They're only a problem when they get out of hand. But I think that we've, gone so far the other direction of kind of like what people call toxic positivity culture that right that like we feel like we can't feel negative feelings anymore and it kind of like bundles them up into these horrible feelings of anxiety and sometimes the only way out is you know and you know i'm glad you mentioned toxic positivity because you know what i have had so many conversations about how um that's become like this weird norm and it's almost having like a such a negative effect on someone who's going through a lot and you know I hate I don't want to see the silver lining I don't want to see but like but at least you or I don't want to see all these things I want to you know wallow in my grief and I want to wallow in the shitty situation that's at hand and I feel like people sometimes like I don't know what it is like I feel like more and more you see people trying to like uh, almost like negotiate I don't even know if the words negotiate like kind of like try to weave themselves into like a more positive light and you're just like no this is shit like this is terrible yeah yeah exactly and and you know it, it becomes pathological when it's not for a specific reason or it gets out of hand or it's kind of like prolonged beyond uh, the time frame that it should be. But, you know, I just I think there's like an emotional constipation almost that comes with toxic positivity. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. it's it's not going anywhere. It's just like piling up inside you and festering. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until you allow yourself to feel every single feeling that you have. Knowing, of course, that you need to be mindful of yourself and take care of yourself and, and you know, prevent yourself from spiraling. But you <laughs> that's why we go to therapy. Exactly. Actually. Exactly. And you just and you know what? I, I will say shout out as a non-white person. I have a non-white therapist. Um, and mm-hmm. this has been super positive for me. There's a there's a, a kind of emotional nuance that I think that she has that she brings to the table. And to tell us that it's okay to sit in the shit for like a better word. And also just that you know, I think also brown women also have a tendency to like have to reframe everything, you know, and I think that it's ingrained in us to re- like to minimize our own issues and to reframe things to look positive. So, of course, we all end up as neurotic adults who have high anxiety and imposter syndrome and all of these things It's because, you know, we're taught not to to delve in our misery and i think that that is actually healthy to your point given you put boundaries on it yeah absolutely so i think that's my that's my like psa for for whoever is going through a season of maybe like not feeling so sure of themselves or you know going through something whatever it may be a depressive depressive episode grief 
any of the things like you just kind of feel your feelings sometimes because emotional constipation just as bad for you as physical constipation. (laughs) There is no type of constipation that's good constipation. The end. (laughs) The end. Mic drop. (laughs) This podcast is over. (laughs) This is is our thesis point. This is our life's work. We're going to get you unblocked in every way. Eat a salad, write a new journal. So our topic for today is a little bit heavier, but I think it's definitely something that we've all been touched by um, in one way or another, whether we know it or whether we don't know it, which is actually going to be uh, a big part of our discussion today. Um, But we're talking about um, addiction, addiction disorders, substance use disorders, just addiction in general. So I want to start off by doing two things. One is defining addiction, um, and then another as by framing addiction from a medical point of view, because I know that there's a lot of conversation, especially in South Asian communities, about the type of problem that addiction is. Um, So I'm going to start off with the definition. So the National Institutes of Drug Abuse um, defines addiction as a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive seeking of substances or behaviors or whatever else um, and use despite of adverse consequences. And it's considered a brain disorder because it involves functional changes to brain circuits involved in reward, stress, and self-control. So this is very much a physiological neuro disorder, a psychological disorder. um, And we want to be clear that it's not a moral failing. Um, It has nothing to do with how good a person is or the impact that they're trying to make in the world. It's just like any other type of uh, illness. Um, It's it's just a brain disorder. And and the positive side of that is that it is highly treatable. Um, It can come about due to a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Um, And it's incredibly treatable. Uh, in the right circumstances if it's recognized properly. I think like one of the big things that I think is important to start with is, you know, the fact that it is highly treatable, but it is a result of so many different things, including uh, genetics, which we we spoke about. And it's like, you know, a brain disorder. And I think like one of the, one of the things that it took me it took me a while to understand, right, is because that's just not how we were taught, is that um, whether it's generationally in our family, really ever, because addiction is not really brought up, just kind of in our normal everyday lives, is that, you know, we go out of our way to treat diabetes, heart disease, you know, all of these kind of physical uh, issues or physical diseases, but it's so hard Uh, for us to kind of wrap our heads around something that's a disease of the brain. It's almost like you can't see it, you know, and so or you can't like have the it doesn't have these kind of like physical, like mainstream effects, right? Like you'd feel your blood sugar rising, you'd feel more thirsty or whatever. So I feel like that's really hard for people to not only within our community who already have like this issue with diagnosing mental health and understanding mental health, but just like everybody has seems to have an issue with it. 
with recognizing it. I totally agree. And I think there's something mental health disorders, including addiction, um, but, you know, also the things like depression, anxiety. um, I mean, they're easier to hide because you cannot physically see a lot of the symptoms. Right. You know, if you have gangrene, that's visible. Right. If you if you have a compound fracture in your leg, that's certainly visible. But, you know, issues like addiction are, I would say they can be no less crippling and they can also be fatal. Um, And so I think what's so insidious about the fact that it's much more difficult to spot the symptoms is that, you know, an uncontrolled infection can, of course, be fatal. And we all know that. And if we saw somebody with an uncontrolled infection, we'd be like, oh, my God, you need to get yourself to a hospital right now. You need to get that treated right now. But uncontrolled mental health disorders like addiction uh, disorders, like substance use disorders, like uncontrolled severe depression, they can be just as fatal. But they're not visually visible, right? You can't clock somebody walking down the street and say, oh my gosh, you have this extremely uncontrolled disease. Go get yourself to a hospital right now. Go get yourself to a treatment facility right now. Um, And so it's almost like people are like out of sight, out of mind. um, And they're like, well, I can't see it. So it's not real. But I think one of the things that we want to do before is uh, Rashmi, you have like a lot of ties to studying this. Mm-hmm. So can maybe we should go back and talk about like what your background is so that you're so like invested in, in this research. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I, I guess in getting into this, even though we've already started a little bit, uh, we, we both obviously a lot of uh, everybody has personal ties to this, but I also have pretty academic ties to this. All of my doctoral work Um, was done in a type of addiction. I specifically looked at nicotine addiction. But interestingly, I looked at the physiological basis of nicotine addiction. Like my entire body of work was based on the physical changes that happen to the brain when it is in repeated contact with um, the substance, nicotine. But, you know, a lot of the work also translates to other substances as well. And like in the scientific community, it's not a debate. It's not like, oh, are there changes? It's like, yeah, there are changes and, and let's study them. Yeah. Um, and so I I have, I think, a real investment from a scientific standpoint of saying, you know, this is something that in the scientific community and in, in the work that I've done is such a given, right? Like if you walked up to an addiction scientist and said, you know, it's just a matter of of mental strength. They'd laugh in your face. They'd be like, okay, but we have all of these markers of brain change and that has nothing to do with mental strength, right? We have all of these markers of genetic predisposition um, and that has nothing to do with brain strength. That just has to do with like the way that you were made. And so why is this something that we allow people to say still? You know, why is this something that if it's so well known in the scientific community, it's been published, it's been peer reviewed. Why are still why are we still allowing people to walk around and say, oh, it's about mental strength or oh, it's about morals or oh, it's about how religious you are. And so I think I'm very I'm very uh, invested in bringing the science, which is irrefutable at this point, into our communities and and 
implementing it in a way that leads to better health outcomes for everybody. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that we in the South Asian community are doing ourselves a disservice by ignoring the advances that have been made in understanding these disorders because they are treatable and they're not, you know, they're not a life sentence and they're not something that should be considered shameful, which is the rhetoric that we hear a lot. It's just like anything else. There are physiological changes involved and there are treatments that a person can undergo to, you know, bring themselves back to a healthy state. And so as a scientist, I say the science is there. And I want our communities to be able to benefit from it. Yeah. No. And, you know, even though my my study was never in obviously addiction. Right. Uh, we have people so close to us who have, um, you know, dealt with addiction. But then also like my point of view is very much comes from the, the norms and like the expectations that's placed on us that's kind of puts us into these kind of difficult situations of not only um, ignoring our own addictions, but then also ignoring others who are susceptible to addiction or understanding your own family history to see where you're kind of predisposed to it. Right. And I think this is why this this subject is so good for you and me together, Anu, because it's like such a combination of the work that you do in understanding, you know, norms and understanding cultural practices and the work that I have done in understanding the brain. And it kind of all comes together to show us how we can cater to people um, better. So let's jump in in a little bit into the causes for addiction. Um, And I think that uh, we all know to a certain extent that environmental factors um, are definitely a cause. But also there is really, really strong research pointing to the fact that there is a genetic component. Addiction is super heritable. It's passed down through families. We all see this. The one thing that like it just did not occur to me that it was genetic. Right. And, you know, um, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around it because it made me have to question generations beyond me to like see what was actually happening. And a lot of times you're sitting there and you're like, oh, my grandfather died of liver disease and my other one died of some burst pancreas and whatever. And there's always some uh, excuse for what it actually was it, liver cancer whatever but it all had to do with the liver like you know it was just very an interesting thing and I think you and I both have histories where they talk about the liver and something going on with it and so it's almost like you have to change your way of thinking in order for you to realize like oh shit I've had generations of yep. of this And what's particularly subtle is it doesn't always show itself in the same type of addiction, right? So there's some addictions like nicotine addiction where you'll see that through the generations and it'll be like my father smoked, my grandfather smoked, my grandfather smoked and his father, you know, used dip or whatever. But in a lot of addiction use disorders, because they have to do with like the way that we understand reward, right? So dopamine, which is such a like, people love to talk about dopamine and I mean, this is my this is my my pet peeve about the way that people blame dopamine for everything. But ultimately, dopamine is this neurotransmitter that helps us feel rewarded for things. And it could be the reward of something as simple as having a really good meal, 
Um, or it could be the reward of something like having a drink. If there's something different about the way that the reward system in the brain works and you're inheriting that, that runs in your family, it can be seen as different types of addictions. So, you know, person A may have alcohol addiction, but their father, person B, might have had a gambling addiction because maybe they weren't, you know, they weren't given access to alcohol. Maybe they couldn't access alcohol where they were. So it might have been gambling. It might have been sex. It might have been food. It might have been any of these things that give us this feeling of reward. Um, and if you feel it differently or if you feel it in a way that's not moderated, mm -hmm. um, then that is an addiction use disorder. And so it's it's beyond, you're right in that it was not always caught in previous generations, but sometimes you have to even bring that extra layer of, of um, critical thinking to it and be like, hey, I mean, I may be seeing it as alcohol in my generation, but, you know, was there somebody in a previous generation that was known for having no control around women or men or whoever their preferred gender may be? Like, yeah. was there somebody who was known for having no control around food? Like, it, it could have been all of these different things, right? Well, it is so funny because I think about a generation above me and again i don't know if it's related but like a generation above me there was a food addiction you know and above that there was a something going on with the liver there's like i feel like in retrospect looking around me i'm like i definitely see inklings of like things that we almost like kind of brush under the rug and just like didn't even think about when it was actually just that's a good point like it's not going to show up as like alcohol addiction throughout time It'll just show up as like the dopamine center of your brain is is different. So it's just going to show up differently amongst different people. Right. But there is that lineage there, right? Like there exactly. is that it's, it is going to pass. So when when we say it's genetic, we're really talking about the the center of the brain that like takes care of dopamine. That's what we're kind of referring to when we say it's addiction can be heritable. Is that what we're saying? That's that's one of the components. Yes, that's okay. one of the key components. Um, it, I mean, addiction is a very complicated issue that involves a lot of the brain centers. Okay, but one of the things that is required for addiction is the pathways in the brain that control dopamine release, um, and so how strongly you feel reward for anything, and and it's tricky sometimes because with addictions that don't involve illicit substances like addictions like food addictions it's hard to it's even harder to see sometimes because everybody's got to eat right absolutely everybody's yeah. got to eat and so it's so subtle from it being you know a person eating the amount that they would be required to as a person trying to sustain themselves versus a person eating solely for that reward aspect instead of um you know to fuel themselves so and I think it's also interesting because this dovetails so well with our discussion of generational trauma that happened a couple of episodes back. Because in that episode, we talked often about how people who didn't understand how to deal with their trauma or people who didn't, you know, have another outlet to deal with their trauma because they couldn't talk about it would often turn to things that release dopamine to make them feel better. Things like food, things like alcohol, you know. Gambling, Drugs, gambling, mm -hmm. sex. Um, and so it's all 
kind of so baked in as something that is it's I don't want to say it's normalized, but it's baked in as something that you would just say, oh, this person had that problem. And you wouldn't dive deeper and say, well, was that an addiction issue? You just be like, oh, they had a problem, you know, at least in South Asian communities, I feel like. And I feel like it's only, you know, one of the things I think about is like that kind of brushing under the rug is so <laughs> some I feel like on brand with how we tend to brush um, other kind of psychological or psychiatric issues under the rug um, in a way. And like a lot of times those kind of, you know, I know from your research that a lot of those come together sometimes to like make it even worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Substance use comes so often with depression, anxiety, um, social anxiety, bipolar disorder. It, it, it's there's so often there's so often um, the, they're so often together in a person to create this perfect storm where sometimes it's hard for a person to parse out mm -hmm. what their symptoms are and get treatment for the right thing um, because they feel so many things at the same time. They're not quite sure what they need to be uh, seeking treatment right. for. Um, but this is kind of our discussion on on addiction in general, but I think I want to focus a little bit more on substance use because I think there's a lot of a lot of substance use disorder in the South Asian community. Um, but the discussion of substance use disorder and alcohol use disorder is so taboo in our communities that we never hear about it. And so some people think that it doesn't exist, but it does very, very, very much exist. Um, and it exists in populations across the lifespan. So there have been uh, studies of substance use across the lifespan in South Asians. And this is something that starts in young adulthood. This is something that starts in college. In studies of South Asians, South Asian Americans and South Asian Canadians, South Asian Canadians and South Asian Americans had some of the highest binge drinking yeah, incidences uh, among college age students. They also have South Asians also reported the greatest lifetime cocaine use among all other Asian populations, um, which is something that I found was absolutely wild. I mean, you know, alcohol is something that I think a lot of South Asians do partake in um, quite openly, but other illicit drugs carry such a taboo. Stigma, yeah. Stigma mm -hmm. and taboo that I was like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's true that South Asians, I mean, it's it's clearly, from this study, it's clearly true that South Asians are using cocaine a lot, but you never, ever, ever hear about it. And I feel like even thinking back to our college days, like, of course, binge drinking and brown, you know, college students binge drinking was like a, a definite norm that I remember, but like, Cocaine use, like that's the South crazy. Asian Student mm -hmm. Association in my college was famous <laughs> for having legendary parties, and by legendary, of course, it means people being blackout, right? 
Yeah, of course. And like, yeah. it was funny because all the other college students would be surprised, like, oh my God, these Stacys, like these like studious, of course, model minority, people would be like, oh, these studious Stacys who are all getting science and engineering degrees are wilding out every weekend. But it yes. was so true. It was so normal for people to be absolutely obliterated on a weekly basis. I also think there's like that the taboo part of it is what makes it so appealing, mm-hmm. right? Like, because so many of us come from homes. I mean, I did not, but so many of us come from homes where drinking can be very restricted or looked down upon, especially based on, you know, our religions. And so within our own culture. So especially I for can women, especially why. for women, though. Oh, yeah. I know. I mean, at least... In a lot of communities, it's like, well, it was okay for the men to drink a little bit, but you're a girl and you're drinking like keeper keeper of the culture. You're expected to be on a pedestal held to that higher moral standard. And it makes it so it makes it extra delicious, you know, like breaking norms. That's the problem. It's like so it's so reckless. I mean, honestly, I'm so embarrassed by my own college years. Like, how did I you even survive both, it? Girl. And also, like, yeah, it was it was disgusting. And I realized that so much of it was like, you know, I would be on campus and I'd be drinking, drinking all the time. And of course, you're having fun, you're in college, you're doing all these things. But there's this little bit of a layer of now I'm gonna go home and behave myself and they're never going to know what mm-hmm. I'm doing mm-hmm. you know because so there's almost that little secret keeping that I always thought was like fun during that time well and it's it's interesting that this we immediately had anecdotes to talk about this because a thing that came up in the literature search was something called immigrant paradox for health outcomes um so studies have found that at least in these arenas of substance use disorder first generation immigrants tend to have better health outcomes and report less uh physical health issues due to substance use disorder which you know you have to ask yourself is this due to hiding substance use disorder or having less of it i mean that is a chicken or the egg question that we'll never answer but ultimately First generation immigrants, I think because of their stronger ties to the more restrictive cultures of the parent countries, tend not to uh, have these binge drinking disorders as much. But for us second generation folks, we have the stress of acculturation that the first generation never did, right? The first generation, a lot of them were voluntary immigrants. A lot of them had their own little enclaves, their own little ethnic enclaves where they could maintain the same Mm -hmm. behaviors as they did in the home country. But now we are second generation people. We are out there in a multicultural college environment or we're living in a multicultural apartment with a bunch of, of roommates and we are having to acculturate ourselves to the culture of the host country. And I think for a lot of us, because of how um, we were raised, we feel like we have to overcorrect. Well, and I also feel like, so when I was reading some of your research on this, the two things, so one thing that came to mind was obviously um, the fact that like our parents kind of rebranded addictions to us and kind of said, oh, your grandfather had this or whatever and just kind of swept down under the rug. So I don't, I feel like I went my entire life not knowing that I was predisposed genetically to kind of like this 
I mean, and so I didn't know I was reckless. I had no like inkling that I had something. But I also think it's interesting because I feel like a lot of brown kids almost and maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but like we don't know how to properly drink. Like we don't because we've never been socialized and seen it. And like a lot of parents, like a lot of my American friends, they have like um, a glass of wine with dinner. Their parents, right, right, would have a glass of wine or I'll have a little happy hour on, you know, and have my parents have a drink. Get a beer at a baseball game, something. Yeah, and I'm like, one beer, one glass of wine. You and I are are victims, culprits. We do all of it. Like we are, we'll have one glass and the next thing you know, we'll have like six glasses. And then, you know, um, I feel like we don't know how to drink properly. And it's almost like something we've had to learn over time. And in certain situations, that can be a big detriment to to oh, absolutely. You or your life. Well, and it's yeah. because there's this fundamental allure of the taboo, right? It's this fundamental allure, especially when you're in that age where you're kind of testing boundaries and stuff. You're in your teens, you're in your late teens, you are kind of testing the rules and you're pushing boundaries and something that has been sold to you as taboo your entire life suddenly you're like oh i have access to it and it is so alluring and so you never think about it as normal you never think about it as something that can be done in moderation healthily it's like an all or nothing mindset um and yeah i think that that totally leads to this idea that you know, South, a lot of South Asians, because of the culture that we grew up in, have trouble moderating our substance intake. Yeah. And then that that coupled with the fact that we're, you know, genetically, we could be genetically predisposed to it is just like a double whammy. And it's really funny because, you know, I have had um, someone very close to me um, dealing with addiction and he and I would talk and I remember uh, one of the things that the doctors would say or like something that like the social worker would say is that, you know, the your genes loaded the mm-hmm. gun. Yeah. Right. But then your environment set yeah. it off. So and I think this is like a great example of like your predisposition is the loading of the gun and the environment that you're in. Um, whether it, and it couldn't it, it could be way more than just like obviously a party addiction that's just like right. one thing or over drinking but like it could be that you had a death or something like a, a huge thing happened yeah like a stress trigger that's the best way of putting it, it happens and that's the environment that you find yourself in covid yeah. was a perfect Isolation, example of an environment depression was on the rise I- isolation depression all you could do was drink because there was nothing else you could do. So that was, you know, the loaded, loaded gun. And then COVID set yeah. it off. Yeah. So I think that's the best analogy I've had to be able to speak to how addiction works in like a, in a, you know, very foundational layman's no, I term. Think that that, I think or that's like a really, it. really great metaphor for it because that's absolutely right. I mean, your, your genetics do load the gun, but your environment does trigger it. But importantly, you have to know that you're walking around with a loaded gun, right? Exactly. Yep. And and so many people generally 
particularly brown people, have no idea they're right. walking around with a loaded gun in and their that, pocket. And that brings me perfectly to my next point, which is our relationships with our healthcare providers. So you go to the doctor, right? The doctor says, lay it on me. Give me a family history. What should we be looking for? You say, doc, diabetes, heart disease, cholesterol, cholesterol. <laughs> you know, all of these other things. But... There is a study that states that South Asians, even those who do recognize that they have addiction use disorder, are way more likely to go to a spiritual healer or a place of worship for healing than to a medical establishment. Oh, my God. Hell yeah. Yes. Because I see, saw it all the time. I mean, you just need I, that, to pray that's more. actually literally happened yeah. to me. That has happened to me where... I've had a family member who really struggled with their health issues and um, and then it didn't like what what happened. They prayed. They prayed more. They meditated more. They went to do more spiritual things. And, you know, it none of it worked out. Their health continued to decline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they passed away like and and it was just like treatable, mm -hmm. treatable for decades. Mm -hmm. And they chose not to right. do it. And like the perfect example of this kind of going to people i also like think it's important to talk about the fact you know that form that you fill out in the yeah. beginning with a healthcare provider i'm very good at putting like i've i've had a stroke in my family mm -hmm. i've had cholesterol diabetes and glucose uh whatever monitoring whatever and the thing is but the minute you i see that little tech mark by oh, depression yeah. Your hand hovers. I'm like your hand yeah, hovers. I'm like, but I was like, my grandma had addiction. Like she was diagnosed with. Or <laughs> sorry, not addiction. Excuse me, depression. She was diagnosed with depression. But I'm like, but I'm not diagnosed with depression. My, I don't know if my parents really sh show depression, even though they may have, and I didn't right. know it. Right, and they never and got maybe a diagnosed. They so they didn't know it. Maybe it manifested in a completely different way. And so, yeah, and. I also think about how much we lie to ourselves and in effect lie to our healthcare providers, yep. not which doesn't allow them to help yep. us either. Yep. And this is where, again, I'm going to put my scientist hat on and get on my little soapbox about traditional medicine practices. So <laughs> um, Ayurveda is a very interesting science. It is a science. And it does have value. So Ayurveda is uh, like a South Asian traditional Vedic method of using plants to treat illnesses. And Yunani is um, of the Muslim tradition, but pretty similar, kind of like using um, using the, the plants, the herbs around you and also like eating certain types of food and stuff to kind of uh, put you in better health. I am not questioning the utility of these medical traditions. And I say this all the time. I have this argument with my family. Ooh, I want to say monthly. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that these are worthless, right? These practices have sustained us for a long, long, long time. But I will say that mm -hmm. they are for health maintenance and they are for treatment of, let's say, chronic low-level conditions. So if you say... Ugh, I, I tend to get a little sour tummy. My tummy tends to be sour. You know, mm -hmm. Ayurveda would be a great place to go 
to say, what fundamental changes can I make in my diet? What herbs can I add? What can I do to maybe make my tummy feel a little better? If you're like, oh, I'm struggling with a little bit of adult acne. I just get a few breakouts. Don't love it. Um, I know that there are Unani treatments for that sort of thing where you can say, you know, I will supplement my life with these herbs. I'll modify my food choices a little bit, maybe not eat saturated fats because, you know, our cultures have known for a long time that those things can cause acne. These are for low level chronic conditions. These types of medicines were come up with before we, we knew anything about germ theory. We knew anything about the way that our bodies worked, about modern medicine, where medicine was based on a system of humors. You know, it was about balancing the heat in the body with the air in the body. And they came up with a lot of ways to maintain good health. Yoga maintains great health. Eating a combination of lentils and, and grains and herbs maintains a lot of health. However, addiction is a... a Acute condition. I mean, it's chronic, but its symptoms can be acute, right? Something like uh, something like a heroin addiction. There is acute life-threatening issues that can happen with that. Something like alcohol addiction. Acute life-threatening issues. I will even expand this to things like diabetes and you oh, know yeah. diabetes and mm-hmm. high blood pressure and cancer treatment. These are not things that can be managed only by lifestyle change. Maybe you can do lifestyle changes in support of the acute interventions that you need to maintain your health. However, going to an Ayurvedic practitioner and changing your diet and adding some herbs is not going to change the acute mental issues that that lead a person to continue seeking substances. It is not a substitute for somebody checking themselves into a rehab facility or a hospital. I'm not saying that people should not use those things in support of their, you know, rehab or hospital journey, but I'm just saying that those things are not a substitute and they will never be a substitute for these acute life-threatening issues. And so you see people succumbing to illnesses, like you said, that they absolutely should not have because they either relied only on something like prayer and spirituality or they require they relied on medical systems that were not meant to provide acute life-saving treatment. Now, that's a really important distinction that I don't think I myself have ever been able to articulate, you know? So I feel like I spent a lot of my time being like, you know, what Ayurvedic solutions. Like, yes, it's hard because it's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's also like, how do I articulate that this is not like, what are we doing? Like, we need more intervention because Ayurvedic solutions don't work in these kinds of situations. And I think you've articulated it perfectly. Like you can't fix an acute problem with something that's meant for yeah. maintenance mm-hmm. or lifestyle it's change. It's meant for maintenance and support. It, it can be supportive of good health, but it's not going to fix a problem that needs a targeted solution. 
Um, and then the other issue is, you know, when people do these things, and I, I don't know if you've ever heard this. I feel like I've heard this a lot in my life, where for some reason people are like afraid of mental health issues going on the medical books, like going in your medical records. Like they're afraid of it being like written down for whatever reason. And it's like, yeah. it's like, okay, so you go to your Ayurvedic practitioner or your Unani practitioner or your your Gurudvara or your temple or whatever, right? You don't really get a solution that works, but you are like, oh, okay, I have I have escaped having this on my permanent record. Like what? It's like a detention. I don't I don't get the fear. I don't get the fear. But then you're doing your your downstream generations a disservice because they never know that it's in your family history. You know, they get they get a, a hold of mom and dad's medical records or grandma grandpa's medical records. They see, you know, quadruple bypass. They see insulin shots. Like things like tangible right. things that they know that they need to right. look out for like i know that i have a family history of diabetes and so yeah as does, right, every as does every brown person, person. <laughs> and so you know i'm really careful about maintaining an exercise schedule and trying to not eat too many refined carbs because i know that that loaded gun is something that i'm carrying and i don't want to pull that trigger but if you don't know that you're carrying the loaded gun of substance abuse disorders how how are you going to know not to pull that trigger so you know yeah. we've talked a lot about carrying the the loaded gun and not wanting to trigger it but you know there are as we've talked about so many stressors to being to navigating the dual identity of being south asian um, in, in, you know, the West. And in addition to normal, normal in heavy square, scare coats, acculturation stress, there are so many other stressors, like a couple of uh, youth in the studies that I looked at cited this additional stress of being South Asian and in the LGBTQ plus community mm. as something that really led them to seek substances as a way to self-medicate. Um, because that was just such a heavy stress in their lives. The stress of like not being able to say anything, the stress of hiding or, or it, the stress of being rejected by the larger community. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think it's really it's interesting because I feel like socially, right, you know, we talked about it being hereditary and genetic, but also, you know, I'm talking about environments. Our environments is really difficult because it feels like the more sometimes the more intersectionality you mm -hmm. have, right, the more points that you have as a person that's almost outside of the norm can trigger more right. things right whether you're a part of a different community than what other generations may consider mainstream whether you're doing something that's like disapproved by right. parents or the community um that can be something else like i'm just real like as we're talking you just realize how many um unique chances south asians have to like you know, be in kind of precarious situations right. regarding substance and it's abuse. Because I think that this the culture can be so prescriptive sometimes. Um, there's very prescribed ideas of um, how you should behave religiously, um, what kind of education you should be getting, who you should marry, what your sexual orientation should be. And so because it's it can be such a prescriptive culture, I feel like if you toe out of line in any of those aspects, um, it can increase the stress that pulls that trigger. 
part of being prescriptive is the the other part of that is that we're so conservative as a culture and we like to do a lot of things behind closed doors you know we don't like make a peep really outside of of closed doors and if we do then it kind of puts us into another weird situation where we're kind of rejected by the or there is a feeling of being rejected by the the larger kind of south asian culture and society Mm -hmm. which i feel like only adds this kind of belief only adds to it you know i think of people who you know want to get help or you know need a safe space uh to talk about just like what they're feeling and what's happening and even the fact that they may be scared and you think about like how with the mental health being seen as like not real in a lot of cases or the fact that there's only certain things you can talk about with your family and your parents and that in the general well-being of the community is kind of um you know rose glasses a little bit with all of those things together you realize that like South Asians with substance abuse problems really like there's not much in in ways of like moving yourself into safe Absolutely spaces. Absolutely not. And and that brings me perfectly into the number one biggest barrier for treatment in our community, which is stigma. Like we laid our own trap. Like this is a serious this is a serious set of disorders that can be fatal. And the thing that is killing our own people, the thing that is that is taking members of our community from us is our own stupid cultural stigma towards people getting treatment for substance use disorders. It's unacceptable. And I think, you know, there is as the generations like move on, I do feel like it's getting hundreds and thousands of times better to a point where like I feel like in our generation Rashmi like (laughs) if someone's like I don't do mental health therapy I'm like everyone's like like, like, immediately (laughs) don't trust you like what (laughs) (laughs) that's not healthy and so I definitely think there's been such a significant shift but the second generation to that point is still living under our are the generations before us like our stigma we are changing that narrative around for mm-hmm. sure but but that the the shadow mm-hmm. of stigma that's been placed on us that we hope that we don't pass on to our kids and we're working really hard not to do that we're still under that shadow and that's why the second generation is having such a hard time versus like i think about my children if they, I would hope that if they ever were scared or got into this kind of a situation, mm-hmm. my, me and my husband are like the safest yeah, people absolutely. to come to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that, I think that's what all of us hope for, for the next generation. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll be free of the stigma by the next generation, this generation after. But for our generation, like you said, it's like we really don't want to stigmatize any of these things. And yet, like we talked about, when your pencil gets over that little depression tick box at the doctor's office, your hand hovers, right? It's, yeah, it it's really is. It's so difficult that like the second generation is really this weird, you know, they talk about us being a sandwich generation of in the sense that we take care of our parents or, you know, our aging parents. And then we also have younger kids. Um, so we're the sandwich generation. But like this term can still be applied to the fact that we're almost like living under the stigmatized mm-hmm. shadows that are 
impacts on us culturally, but moving towards like something that gives our children a different right. lifestyle and the, those stigmas are right. broken. So we're in a very weird, awkward, hopeful position, right. but it's still hurting and us. And it's interesting that you bring our parents' generation into the equation because as more people in our generation, in, in the millennial generation, become caregivers for their aging parents, you know, then the question is, as you the person with the responsibility for your parents' health, if you see them having this kind of issue and you want that to encourage them to get treatment for it, would they accept it? Would they go get treatment or would that be another battle? And it would probably be another battle. Like while you're trying to instill these values of no stigma in your children, you're trying to fight your parents to get the treatment that they need for their stigmatized issues. And it's really, you know, that's something I deal with often. I know that's something you deal with often is having these conversations with our family members around getting kind of that mental health help. And like, you know, I spend a lot of time with my therapist talking about the fact that like we can't change other generations mind. I can only deal with what right. I have, you know, and like make sure my children are okay. But that doesn't mean that it is so difficult for me to have and others to have like that bifurcated thinking that that's very difficult and and can again like we're just setting us our, ourselves up for difficult situations in the right. future. Well, not really setting us up. Like we're just natural we're getting set right. up. Right. And, yeah. and so I think this brings me to another point that's really important is that there's a lack of culturally tailored options for treatment for, you know, South Asians and a lot of other ma marginalized yeah. identities. An interesting thing that came out, especially when thinking about people in our parents' generation, is that for people who are not thinking in terms of mental health issues, um, oftentimes symptoms can come out as physical symptoms, right? So depression can be seen as, you know, aches and pains or stomach issues or, or um, fatigue and stuff like that, or it can come out substance use issues. They may not say, oh, I have a substance use issue, but suddenly an adult may present with jaundice. And it's like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. what's that about? That's definitely secondary to alcohol use disorder. Um, and having culturally tailored treatment facilities or treatment providers would be helpful because then they would see somebody presenting these issues and say, hey, let me ask you some deeper questions. I'm just not going to treat you for the physical symptom that you have right now. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper and say, is there something else going on? Is there a depression issue going on, an anxiety issue going on, an addiction issue going on? Like what is happening here that's leading to these physical symptoms? And a lot of, uh, and, and that kind of cultural tailoring may also make South Asians, certainly of the generation before us, but our generation too, and downstream generations, like I mentioned in the beginning, as a non-white person, I love having a non-white therapist because there's some things that I think I feel I can just communicate better. And so culturally tailored treatment, I think would make such a huge difference in getting South Asian Americans and other South Asians really, really good treatment for a substance use disorder that they need that they're not getting currently. So does this look like, I guess, and I even wrote this when we were working earlier, is like, what does this look like? Does this mean finding somebody who... Mm -hmm 
is, you know, that that you're comfortable with, you know, like you have a brown therapist, so do I, you know, I, or does this mean getting, you know, I guess I'm just wondering like what this I would think, look like. I think to me, I think to me it means a couple of things. I think, um, you know, the model minority myth is insidious in a lot of ways, including in healthcare. Um, I think a lot of people don't think of South Asians as a target for substance use treatment because they think that that's not something that a model community in heavy, heavy quotes would be engaging in. And so I think a lot of South Asian patients get overlooked for this type of thing um, because it, it, this this moral failing issue, yeah, it's this people seeing substance use as a moral failing issue. It's huge in the South Asian community, but it's still prevalent in the larger medical community, not even striated by ethnicity or whatever. Right. Like this is the stigma issue is huge in the South Asian community, but it also still exists in the larger medical community. Um, mm. And the the model minority myth is hurting our populations physically because we're not seen as people that require treatment for these types of issues as much as, you know, other populations maybe. Um, and so having a healthcare provider that would know the stats, know the prevalence, know that these are questions that they need to be asking of their South Asian patients, um, I think would be huge in recognizing cases of people that need to be treated. Um, other other things would be, you know, maybe having addiction specialists who are bilingual in certain languages for people of the older generation. A lot of times people don't know how to describe emotions or angst in English when it's their second or third language. They might be able to get to the core of somebody's yeah. anguish um, in a way that it's hard to do when you're your fifth or sixth language and it's hard to translate those mental processes. I, I also um, think about like, even if someone's been here for like decades, right? And they've never been taught to like be in a place where they can understand their own, like what does anxiety feel like? What does, you know, um, angst feel like? You know, all those things. Even if they're extremely fluent in English, even if it's not their first language, right? It's easier for them, I feel like, to say, and we've both studied this, where we they say something to the fact of like, I'm feeling like my heart is pounding. Well, yeah. now you've made it into a physical issue, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, if anxiety shows up with like, you know, your leg is like jumping almost, mm -hmm. right? And you'll be like, something's going on with the nerves in my leg, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I've noticed that even that has become and something is that descriptions and educating people is so important because they almost don't even know what they're feeling. Exactly. Exactly. And so having healthcare providers that would be asking these questions and, you know, maybe you do a physical workup and you check for restless leg sy syndrome or something. The person doesn't have anything indicating they would have restless leg. Instead of just signing them out and sending them on their merry way, you should say, hey, does this happen when you feel stressed? Does this happen when you feel sad? 